Back to the Rights and Liberties podcast, where we are discussing Federalist Papers. Today we will talk about Federalist 76. We typically organize these podcasts around three big ideas from the essay under review. Here are three big ideas concerning Federalist 76. Big Idea 1. In Federalist 76, Hamilton explained the benefits of having one person, the President, nominate those to be appointed to significant offices in the U.S. government. Big Idea 2. In Federalist 76, Hamilton explained the benefits of having a group of people, the Senate, approve persons nominated by the President for offices in the U.S. government. Big Idea 3. Part of the justification for Big Ideas 1 and 2 can be thought of as psychological. At the end of Federalist 76, Hamilton offered observations on human nature and public service. It would be correct to think that Federalist 76 offers a defense of the way often called the appointment power, from which occupants of significant offices of the USA are selected. The President nominates people to fill those offices, and the Senate confirms, or not, those nominated. Hamilton began with the role of the President, quoting Hamilton here, quote, I proceed to lay it down as a rule that one man of discernment is better fitted to analyze and estimate the peculiar qualities adapted to particular offices than a body of men of equal or perhaps even of superior discernment, end quote. Part of Hamilton's justification of this claim was based on the greater sense of responsibility felt by a person acting alone than by a group of people. That is the positive case about what a single person, the president, would do better than a group. Hamilton also offered a negative case about what a group would do worse than a single person, quoting Hamilton on this, quote, A single well-directed man, by a single understanding, cannot be distracted and warped by that diversity of views, feelings, and interests, which frequently distract and warp the resolutions of a collective body. There is nothing so apt to agitate the passions of mankind as personal considerations, whether they relate to ourselves or to others, who are to be the objects of our choice or preference. Hence, in every exercise of the power of appointing offices, by an assembly of men, we must expect to see a full display of all the private and party likings and dislikes, partialities and antipathies, attachments and animosities, which are felt by those who compose the assembly. End quote. As one can see, Hamilton thought it important to avoid the possibility that appointments would be a function of party politics. As he put it, an appointment that might, quote, be the result either of a victory gained by one party over the other, or of a compromise between the parties, end quote. Now, Hamilton thought the executive should have a role, but not the only role, in appointments to significant office under the federal government. The benefit of the participation of the Senate in these appointments is big idea, too. The way Hamilton squared this with the advantages gained from having a single person, the president, choose, was to assert, quote, that every advantage to be expected from such an arrangement would, in substance, be derived from the power of nomination, which is proposed to be conferred upon him, while several disadvantages which might attend the absolute power of appointment in the hands of that officer would be avoided. End quote. 
One potential hazard of this method of choosing officials was described by Hamilton. What if the Senate should reject the President's choice? Hamilton thought this might happen, but this did not seem to him an objection to the method outlined by the Constitution, in part because it seemed to Hamilton that the Senate would not be able to determine the voice through rejecting the nominee of the President, quoting Hamilton on this, quote, The Senate could not be tempted by the preference they might feel to another to reject the one proposed because they could not assure themselves that the person they might wish would be brought forward by a second or by any subsequent nomination, end quote. So that explains why the Senate would not be harmful. But what positives would the Senate bring to the process? Hamilton posed and answered this question, quoting Hamilton once again, quote, To what purpose, then, require the cooperation of the Senate? I answer that the necessity of their concurrence would have a powerful though, in general, a silent operation. It would be an excellent check upon a spirit of favoritism in the president, and would tend greatly to prevent the appointment of unfit characters from state prejudice, from family connection, from personal attachment, and from a view to popularity. In addition, it would be an efficacious source of stability in the administration. End quote. Big Idea 3 points to Hamilton's broader considerations, both of human nature and of the motivations of those engaged in public service, in part directly oriented to the substantive points discussed in Federalist 76, and in part with wider relevance to his views on political theory. Hamilton broached this topic in the course of defending the usefulness of the President and the Senate sharing responsibility for appointments to significant offices in the federal government. Quoting Hamilton here, quote, to this reasoning, it has been objected that the President, by the influence of the power of nomination, may secure the complacence of the Senate to his views. The supposition of universal venality in human nature is little less an error in political reasoning than the supposition of universal rectitude. The institution of delegated power implies that there is a portion of virtue and honor among mankind, which may be a reasonable foundation of confidence and experience justifies the theory. It has been found to exist in the most corrupt periods of the most corrupt governments. End quote. What did Hamilton mean here? He urged people not to assume that venality is a universal characteristic. That would be a mistake. One may reasonably assume that there are good characteristics in humans. Hamilton pointed to virtue and honor. Experience tells us, according to Hamilton, that this is so. To be sure, people have qualities other than virtue and honor. Hamilton thought the claims about, quote, universal rectitude, end quote, were even more incorrect. But there is some virtue in honor, and Hamilton saw this as an empirical fact, shown by experience. In what might seem a surprising note, as we saw, Hamilton saw this fact as demonstrated in corrupt regimes. Note his claim. Quote, in the most corrupt periods of the most corrupt governments, end quote. Hamilton had a particular example in mind, quoting Hamilton here, quote, The venality of the British House of Commons has been long a topic of accusation against that body in the country to which they belong, as well as in this. And it cannot be doubted that the charge is, to a considerable extent, well-founded. But it is as little to be doubted that there is always a large proportion of the body, which consists of independent and public-spirited men who have an influential weight in the councils of the nation, 
Hence it is, the present rein not excepted, that the sense of that body is often seen to control the inclinations of the monarch, both with regard to men and to measures. End quote. Would one be justified in the fear that the Senate might be influenced in its judgment of nominees by considerations other than qualifications of nominees for office? Hamilton thought that this might happen on an individual basis, but would not happen on a scale such that one might see the Senate as corruptive. Quoting Hamilton here, quote, Though it might therefore be allowable to suppose that the executive might occasionally influence some individuals in the Senate, yet the supposition that he could in general purchase the integrity of the whole body would be forced and improbable. A man disposed to view human nature as it is, without either flattering its virtues or exaggerating its vices, will see different, will see sufficient ground of confidence in the probity of the Senate to rest satisfied, not only that it will be impracticable to the executive to corrupt or seduce a majority of its members, but that the necessity of its cooperation in the business of appointments will be a considerable and salutary restraint upon the conduct of that magistrate, end quote. We typically close these podcasts with reflection on the ways in which the ideas in the essay under review help us better understand enduring ideas about politics in the present and the future. And there is a general claim that we have just reviewed that might make us think harder about the character of virtue and of corruption. I think it is fair to treat corruption as the opposite of virtue or honor for these purposes. But if the most corrupt periods and the most corrupt governments are nevertheless subject to the sway of independence and public spirit, it is fair to ask what would make a government corrupt. One way to answer might be to point to republican institutions, and to say that such institutions can harness and make useful the strength of even those that are corrupt. We have encountered arguments of this kind in earlier essays of the Federalist Papers. Hamilton referred to independence and public spirit. Are such qualities fostered by Republican institutions, or do they exist independent of such institutions? Thank you for listening to the Rights and Liberties podcast. For more about the Sunwater Institute, please visit our website at sunwater.org.